Well, there is uh, no category for this in the Guinness Book of World Records, but if there were, my wife and I would hold it. The category would be the longest prayer at a wedding. Because at our wedding, many years ago now, our pastor prayed what must have been the longest prayer in the history of weddings. Absolute true story. He prayed for our parents three times. He prayed for our grandparents two times. He prayed for our friends, our guests, our extended family members. He prayed for everyone and everything multiple times, so much so that it got to a point where I opened my eyes and began to look around. Which if you know anything about prayer in the Bible, you're not allowed to open up your eyes. That's against the Bible. So even if you're driving, you have to pray with your eyes closed. That's a thing. Okay, so I'm like literally like there and I'm nervous. And my wife had just come down the aisle and my father-in-law had just given her away. And it was that, you know, kind of opening section of the wedding now. And our pastor says, let's pray. And he just kept praying and praying and praying. And eventually I look up, like, what planet am I on? Like, are we paying him by the hour? I don't even know what's going on. And when I open up my eyes, I look over and I discover why he was praying so long because the train of my wife's dress had been detached. And she and her sisters were working feverishly to reattach it. Now, what happened is my father-in-law, when he came down the aisle with my bride and he gave her away, he went to step over the train and instead of stepping over it, he stepped on it and he ripped it from her dress as he went to sit down. Now, my pastor, being a good pastor, knew that when you pray at a wedding, it's also in the Bible, if you're a pastor at a wedding and you're praying, you're allowed to open your eyes just to make sure no one's passed out or anything like that. And so he had noticed what was happening. And like, I don't know what my sister-in-laws were doing. They were doing some type of Taekwondo moves with hairpins. And somehow they were working to reattach the train. And as long as they were working, this guy was praying. And it is the longest recorded prayer in any wedding, I promise you. And some of it's my wife's fault. She bought the longest train in history. We got married in Indiana. Her train stretched to Nebraska, okay? So some of it is her fault. But like all of this is unfolding at the very beginning of our wedding. We're as nervous as we can be. I'm like, now what? The prayer's going on and on and on. True story. My grandparents prayed for multiple times, parents, friends, extended family. I mean, it is getting to the point of ridiculous. And finally he says, amen. At that point, we're having to resuscitate people in the back. Okay. He had prayed so long. And then it's like, now what? And And there were a lot of things that that did not go according to plan that day. (laughs) But you know what did go according to plan? We got married. We got married. It worked. I tricked her, got her to the aisle. (laughs) Boom, over and done with. And you know what happens at every wedding? A lot of crazy stuff. 
A lot of, sometimes the ring bearer or the flower girl trip down the aisle. Sometimes they run down the aisle. Sometimes they don't come down the aisle, right? Sometimes they cry down the aisle. Sometimes trains get detached. Sometimes um, someone messes up with the, sometimes the, uh, you know, the audio engineer doesn't start the song at the right moment for the unity candle or the sand. Sometimes the lights and the candles don't stay lit. They, I mean, so there's just all kinds of crazy things. But here, here's the thing. If you're, if you're planning to get married in the future, I have some good news for you. Of all the crazy things that can go wrong, the only thing that has to go right is that you bring a witness with you each and you recite your vows. And if you do that, you will be married. That's really all you have to do. Now, those vows can cost you about 15000 each. <laughs> well, they're expensive vows now, depending on how you do it. That's up to you. But the only thing you have to do to get married is recite your vows to your spouse. And those vows in some form or fashion, whether they're traditional, modified, traditional, you write them yourself, it doesn't matter. Those vows in some form or fashion will involve you committing to love, to cherish in sickness and in health, when you're an emotional wreck or when you're sane. <laughs> In some form or fashion, those vows are, I will love you and be faithful to you no matter what till death do us part, right? And that's really all you have to do. And amidst all the other crazy things that may happen, that's the one thing you gotta do. And if you do that, you're married and you will live happily ever after, right? That's the goal. Well, listen, today we're, we're, in a, we're in a series called Beginnings. We're looking at some very first in human history and some very first going back to the opening chapters of God's word. And, and today we're gonna, we're, we're gonna come to kind of a restart with Noah. Last week we talked about the flood and how God brought a universal flood to the world in judgment for man's sin. And he, he, he saves Noah who was righteous, who loved the Lord, who walked with the Lord, who lived by faith. Noah was far from a perfect man, but, but he was a man who lived his life in fear of the Lord and, and in great faith. And, and now we're gonna see coming out of the flood, kind of a restart. And here's what's so amazing about this. We see for the very first time in human history, God establishing a covenant with his people. And if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible, here's what a covenant is. A covenant is God coming before his people and in essence saying, I do. Amidst all the things that have gone wrong in the world up to this point, the murder of Abel, the complete devaluing of human life, the dysfunction on the earth, the chaos that prompted the judgment of the flood, for all that has gone wrong on the earth, God is now in this restart with Noah, entering into a covenant whereby he says, I do. A covenant is like a vow. A covenant is, is something that God enters into with his people that's very much like a marriage. It's something that is serious in nature. It's something that is relational in nature. If you're taking notes, let me just give you a definition here of what a covenant is. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Now notice this, a covenant is a relationship. A contract, by the way, is not a covenant in this regard. 
a contract is not relational. You know, you can have a contract for someone to build a house, but only a covenant relationship can establish a home. And the difference between a contract and a covenant is that a covenant is implicitly relational. And so when we're thinking about a covenant into which God enters with you, with the human race, and we go back as we are today, and we're looking at the covenant that God enters into with Noah, I just want you to understand, it's a chosen relationship involving two people or two parties with binding promises. And what's so cool about what God does with Noah is that he establishes a pattern that is repeated only four more times throughout human history. Because what God does through covenant actually (laughs) involves ultimately you and me. And the very first covenant gives us a glimpse into how God is now going to operate with his people through the lens of human history post Flood. All right, and so let me take you back to Genesis 9. Let's look at this very first covenant with Noah. You're going to see this is a covenant that involves uh, the earth, all of the earth, all places, all people, and even all animals, all living beings. Okay, here's what God says. He blessed Noah coming out of the ark now and his sons, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, restart. God's saying to Noah the same thing he said to Adam, right? Now I want you to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This is God's design, human flourishing, okay? And all of the animals of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea, I will, I, I will give to you, right? They will look to you with fear and terror for I have given them to you in your power. In other words, God's saying there's a difference between human life and every other type of life on the earth. I know there are some today that postulate human life is no different than animal life or fish life. I'm just telling you that there is a significant difference between human life and every other life form on planet earth. Only human beings, as we have seen, are given in the image of God. We have a consciousness about us that makes us aware of not only our place in human history, but our relationship with God. We contemplate things, we are aware of things, we are conscious of things that no other created being is. And so God is saying all of the other created beings, just as he said to Adam, you have dominion over. So you're to care for them, you're to steward them appropriately, right? And so you're gonna multiply, fill the earth and you're gonna exercise dominion over the rest of it, okay? Now, here's what he says, I have given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. You may have noticed this is the life verse for golden corral. Okay, so this is uh, up above the uh, front door when you walk in. Okay, so God is saying, so uh, you've got them um, to eat, to sustain you, just as grain and vegetables. But then he says this in verse four, but you must never eat of any meat that still has the lifeblood in it. Okay, those of you who get your steaks rare, you're living on the edge. I'm telling you, you're living on the edge. All right, I'm telling you, medium rare, uh, medium. I'm just telling you. All right, that, that was free. Okay, but uh, he says, you know, be careful here. And then verse five, and then, this is huge. I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. If anyone who murders a fellow human must die. Notice God here is kind of going back even to the opening days with Adam and Eve and their sin and their sons as Cain murdered Abel. God saying in this restart, be fruitful and multiply, exercise dominion and understand the preciousness of human life. 
so that there is no murder. If there is murder, there is a deterrent built into anyone who murdered that they also will lose their life. It's a deterrent. It's an elevation of life. He's saying anyone who murders another human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands for God made human beings in his own image. And so restatement here, verse seven, be fruitful and multiply, repopulate the earth. And then God says this to Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. First covenant in human history. God says, okay, this is new. I'm making a covenant with you. This is God saying, I do. This is God giving a vow. Here's what it is. With Noah and his sons, all the animals that were on the boat that are now filling the earth as well, birds, livestock, wild animals, every creature on earth. He says, yes, I'm confirming my covenant. That, here it is, here's the vow, if you will. I will never again bring floodwaters to kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Here's why this is important. Because human beings are gonna resort to being as bad as they were before the flood. This is not, okay, we all learn from the flood and we're all gonna be better and honor God and love him and walk with him. No, 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 no. It's not gonna take too many generations and, and mankind's gonna be as dysfunctional post-flood as they were pre-flood. But God says, here's my vow. Here's my covenant. First covenant in human history. I'm not gonna bring another flood. There's not gonna be another restart. I'm, just, I'm not gonna keep doing this. I'm not, I'm not gonna keep starting over, no. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. So then God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you and all living creatures, not just Noah and his family, but really every living creature on earth for all generations to come. This is, this is a, a permanent covenant, right? He says, I have, I have placed a rainbow in the clouds. That rainbow is a sign of my covenant with you and with all of the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant that I made with you, all living creatures. Never again will floodwaters destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I'll remember the eternal covenant. Remember this language is what we call an anthem anthropomorphic description here. It's God just using human terms. To, it's not that God forgot and he'll remember. It's just his way of saying, hey, I'm ever mindful of the fact I'm gonna be faithful to the covenant I have made. The rainbow to you is a reminder. I'm always faithful to these covenants that I'm gonna be establishing. I'm never gonna destroy every living creature on earth. And God said to Noah, yes, this rainbow is a sign of the covenant. I am confirming with all creatures on the earth and we see here for the first time in human history, a covenant. God saying, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something significant. And I'm never again in this particular covenant gonna destroy the earth. This covenant relates to all people. It relates to all life. It relates to all places on the earth. So those of you who have dogs, this covenant applies to your dogs. I know that's good news. It does not apply to cats, coincidentally. This only applies to dogs. And, uh, and uh, no, I'm kidding, of course. So all animals, all human life, all places, God is saying, I'm never gonna destroy the earth. The rainbow is a reminder that God is faithful to do what he's promised to do. Now, here's the thing about Noah's covenant. 
This covenant, as you can see here, does not provide redemption. But here's what it does. It ensures the ongoing flourishing of the human race by which the other covenants that are redemptive will be in force. Here's what the Noahic covenant does, this covenant with Noah does. It ensures that God's never again gonna destroy the earth, no matter how bad people get, with a flood, so that he can bring to fruition through the human race the promise he gave Adam and Eve, which was that through the seed of the woman, he's gonna raise up a Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent. And the Noah covenant sets the stage for everything that happens next because now we have a guarantee that all people, all places, all animals, okay, there's never gonna be to any of them another flood. There's never gonna be another restart. Now God, through this covenant, is going to establish a land, going to establish human flourishing so that he can bring to fruition the promise he gave Adam and Eve. But God wasn't done with covenants. And and so let me show you a timeline here of the four other covenants that really govern human history. If you're new to church, hey, this is gonna be kind of an important overview for you. Maybe you've you've, uh, been been following Jesus for a while and maybe this is kind of new or be a refresher, but I just want you to understand, you can't fully understand the Bible. You can't fully understand human history without understanding these covenants. Noah, you'll see here, sets the stage for what happens next. And what happens next ultimately involves you and me. So here we go. So we, we started this series with Adam. Adam lived around 4,000 BC. Okay, I don't want any of you uh, weirdos emailing me and saying, actually, it was 4,038. Okay, I'm rounding up. I'm just using big numbers. I'm a big picture guy. I'm not a math guy. Math people are weird. Okay, so I don't, that's not me. Okay, okay. So round number, I'm just kidding, math teachers. Also, don't send me any emails. Okay, so, so I'm, listen, just round numbers, okay? Around 4,000 BCs, we're talking with Adam. Look, look at this. 1,500 years passed between Adam and Noah. It's about 1,600 years from Adam to the flood. But then I want, I want to show you the four other covenants. God makes this covenant with Noah. I'm never going to destroy the earth again. No matter how bad it gets, I'm not going to do it. Okay, not, not, not till the final judgment. So, so here we go. And then about 500 years later, we get to Abraham. And God establishes his second covenant with Abraham. What was that covenant? Well, it was land, descendants, blessing. God said to Abraham, man, I, 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 I'm gonna raise up a generation from you, a people from you that will be new, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. You're gonna have descendants, you're gonna have land and eternal blessing. That, that, that covenant is still in force. God's still doing that. God's still adding to Abraham's descendants because you know what the apostle Paul said? The true children of Abraham are children of faith. And God is still producing, right, this generation, uh, the, the, this people who are the children of Abraham. And we look forward to the day one day in the eternal kingdom when we will have land and the blessing of God with him dwelling with us face to face. This covenant is still in force. Right, God's still doing it. So that's about 500 years after Noah. You say, wait a minute, about 1,500 years from Adam and Noah, 500 to Abraham, why? Because remember, before the flood, people lived a really, really, really long time. 
I mean, there's people living six, seven, eight hundred years, right? I mean, can you imagine like getting together every single year at Chuck E. Cheese? What number is this? Number 724. <laughs> boy, you don't look a day over 600, I tell you. Uh, boy, you look really, really good. And so remember, pre-flood, people lived a long time. Post-flood, man's years are limited to 120 or fewer. And so what we're seeing here is 1,500 years, but then we're going to be about 500-year increments. So 500 years, Noah sets the stage for what God does with Abraham. Another covenant, second covenant, covenant of land, descendants, blessing. And then the third covenant comes through Moses at Sinai. It's the Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant. And that covenant was given specifically to Israel. Now this covenant, as I'm going to show you in a moment, is actually a conditional covenant that's gonna be replaced by a better covenant. Because to Israel, God said through Moses and at Sinai, I'm gonna govern you by my law. There's, there's this citizenship of Israel that you're gonna be a part of. And then you'll remain in the covenant as long as you keep your end of the deal. Okay, which they don't. So more on that in a moment. And then about 500 years later, you get to David. David is a covenant established unconditionally and eternally. Here's the covenant. There's gonna be a kingdom with peace and prosperity just as David established for Israel. God says your rule and your reign in a sense is going to move into eternity. In this way, there's gonna be a future king who comes and establishes eternal peace and prosperity for his people. And he's gonna come, this king, through the line of David. We know who that is, Jesus of Nazareth. One who came in the line of David, and here's what Jesus has accomplished for us and that he will realize for us in the new heavens, new earth, a kingdom of perfect peace and prosperity for his people. A kingdom with land, dwelling with God face to face, descendants of all of those who come to salvation through faith and eternal blessing. So what we have is Noah's covenant setting the stage for what God will do through Abraham, now working through Israel, ultimately David, this king that's coming. And then notice now in the ministry of Jesus, about a thousand years after David, there's a new work that happens. It's now gonna involve the spirit of God. It's, it's gonna bring us not as citizens into a relationship with God, but as sons and daughters. And it's a covenant of faith, okay? Now you may be wondering, okay, what about this thousand years? Well, about 500 years after David, 586 BC to be exact, the Babylonians conquered the Israelites, and they destroyed Jerusalem. Solomon's temple torn down. And, and then shortly after that, during the period of the prophets, right? After the prophets come, and we have their witness in the Old Testament, 400 years of silence. And so we move from Adam to Noah, first covenant, second covenant, 500 years later, third covenant, 500 years later, fourth covenant, 500 years later, 500 years after David, the destruction of Jerusalem. 600 years after David, complete silence. Until some random weirdo who dressed funny and ate a paleo diet named John the Baptist showed up. And of course he had to be Baptist, right? Giving all of us Baptists a bad name, kind of weirdo guy. And he says... There is one who is coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to undo. 
And Jesus of Nazareth came as our Messiah. And through his death and resurrection, through his ascension into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost, his spirit came to indwell every believer. And that changed the landscape for now 2,000 years of what God is doing in the world. And so let me show you now, you got these five covenants. Noah sets the stage. Here's what Noah's covenant does. It, it, it sets the stage for everything else that's gonna happen. God's not gonna destroy the earth with a flood. It's not gonna, doesn't matter how bad it gets. And then he is gonna work through these covenants. Now let me take these two here. Let me just show you quickly how these work together. Because this old covenant is so often what people think of in terms of how they relate to God, right? Like, like the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant. Well, I've got to obey the law, right? And I'm going to be a citizen of God's kingdom kind of thing. And, and it comes through my obedience. Listen, that's the old covenant. And here's the one thing. This is the unique thing about the covenants that are still enforced today. Noahic covenant still enforced. Abrahamic covenant still enforced. Davidic covenant still enforced. The old covenant no longer enforced. You know why? Because God gave us a better covenant in Jesus. And that covenant is prompted by the Spirit. It brings us into a relationship with God as sons and daughters. And that's a covenant you can enter by faith. So listen, here's the thing. If you're new to church, new to, new to the Bible, I got good news for you. You can get in on this covenant. I think you might want to do that. You can get in on this covenant because this covenant has replaced this covenant. Let me go back kind of the big picture here, timeline, okay? Because, because these two covenants work in line with these three covenants, but this one given to replace this one. And let me tell you something. For those of us who live in 2023, it's awesome that we get to live on this side of human history. I mean, this is some awesome stuff. Let me, let me show you why. Okay, a couple things. Okay, I encourage you to take these down. First of all, look, the old covenant was sealed with the giving of the law, but the new covenant is sealed with the giving of the Spirit. All right, now just track with me here. Listen, listen. That first covenant, the old covenant, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, okay, Noahic covenant, okay, never gonna destroy the earth, okay? Everything is, 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 is set for what I'm gonna do. God's saying what I'm gonna do in the future starts with Abraham. There's gonna be land in the future that you possess safely, securely, peacefully. There's gonna be descendants, man, you can't even count them all. It's gonna be blessing like you can't believe. But to get in on it now, you got to enter it through the new covenant, not the old. Now, the old covenant was for Israel. The old covenant was, was sealed with the law. The old covenant was for a, a specific nation. And the old covenant failed to bring Israel into a right relationship with God. Do you know why? Be, because the law can never bring you into a right relationship with God. You know what the purpose of the law is? The purpose of the law is to show you where the line is that you shouldn't cross. That's the purpose of the law. Paul talked about this in Galatians 3. Look at this. Here's what he says. He says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. God, God gave us the law to show people their sins. The law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. 
So here's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law, that's what God gave Israel at Sinai, the 10 commandments, right? Do not covet. The law is do not covet. I, I couldn't know that coveting was wrong or sin until God said, coveting is wrong, coveting is sin. But hear me on this. Listen, this is important. But the law gives you no power to obey it. That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to draw a line in the sand and say, don't cross over that line. You know what we do? We cross over the line. (laughs) You know what we do? We find really creative ways to cross over the line. Come on, parents, you ever had this happen? I had this happen a lot. Kids are little, they're in a high chair, they're eating dinner. What happens? Put that little, you know, those little plates with the little dividers that don't work. And, you know, you put it in front of them and, and uh, you got the, I don't know, cut up pieces of chicken, a little broccoli, something, whatever. And what happens? Stuff being tossed over the high chair. You say to your sweet little sinful, horrifically evil child, right? You say, okay, don't throw your food. What happens next? The plate is flying off the high chair, baby. And if your child could speak in that moment, your child would say, you didn't tell me not to throw my plate, right? And so what do you have to do as a parent? Don't throw your food, don't throw your plate, don't throw your cup, don't throw your fork, don't throw your spoon, don't throw your brother, don't throw your sister, right? And before you know it, you are trying to legislate the morality of your child with all of these different laws. The problem is none of these laws have the power within them to prompt obedience in the heart of your child. That's not the purpose of the law. Before know it, before you know it, you could become the most legalistic parent on planet Earth and come up with a thousand different laws that govern your child during mealtime. I got news for you. All of those laws are not gonna promote obedience in the heart of your child. Those of you who are new parents and you're reading all these new books and you got all these parameters and you say, well, that's not gonna be my child. (laughs) Yeah, come see me in a couple of years and I will accept your apology. Because some of you are like, oh, my, my kid ain't never going to throw his or her food. That ain't never going to, mm, they're never going to disobey. Mm, they're always going to get up on Sunday morning and they're going to be ready to go to church because they're going to love Jesus and they're going to do their hair and they're going to be good. And we're going to get in the car and we're going to sing hymns and songs and we're going to recite scripture and we're going to come into church and they're going to take good notes and we're going to be driving home after church and they're going to be talking to me about the message and they're going to say, oh, mom and dad, how I love Jesus. Thank you for raising me so well. You are living in a fantasy land. That ain't ever gonna happen. You're gonna come to church kicking and screaming your kids. You're gonna be tired, fatigued. You're just gonna mess up nap time. Listen, one of the reasons we do church on Sunday morning is to mess with your kids' nap. It's just to cultivate perseverance in your hearts. Right? Like, you know this if you're a parent. You know this. You can legislate all the rules you want. Your kids are going to find ways to circumvent them. Do you know why? Because you did the same thing. So hear me. The law was never intended to give you the power to obey it. It has one purpose. To show you you can't obey it. Here's the line. Just look at your life. Look at the times you've stepped over the line. That's the purpose of the law. You and I need help. 
there's, there's gonna have to be a fix from the outside to our brokenness. And long before Jesus came, during the period of the prophets, just before the 400 years of silence, let me just show you what God said to his people. God said the solution's not the Sinai covenant. The long-term solution is not your strict obedience to a law that you can't obey. No, God said, I'm about to do something new. Check this out, Ezekiel 36. Here's what God said. Back before Jesus, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you follow my decrees and you're careful to obey my regulations. The day is coming, declares the Lord, right? The day is coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Now, let me, let me take you to Jeremiah, Okay. Here, here's what Jeremiah says. The day is coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the old covenant with Moses and Sinai when I took my people by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt because they broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband, loves his wife, says the Lord. Here's what God was telling his people long before, okay? We're, we're talking five, 600 years before the ministry of Jesus. God said, the purpose of the law is to show you your need for me. The purpose of the law is to show you where you keep crossing the line. The purpose of the law is to show you that the fix to your brokenness has to be from the outside, can't come from the inside. And there is coming a day I'm gonna bring that fix. There is coming a day when I'm gonna give you someone that will enable you to keep the covenant. And so, and so here's the thing, the, 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 the first, first takeaway here, so, so this is what Noah sets the stage for, a covenant that produces obedience within God's people. Okay, this, is a, this means the old covenant was sealed by the law, new is gonna be sealed by the spirit. Secondly, here, here's the thing about this covenant, it remains in force because of God's faithfulness in the midst of our failures. It's a covenant that's unconditional. It's a covenant, not like the first, that was conditional upon Israel's obedience. No, 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 no. Their disobedience to the covenant is what led them to exile. It's what led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. This new covenant, listen to me, will never be annulled because it is a covenant sealed by the spirit, not the law, and is a covenant that God has ensured is met conditionally through the obedience of Jesus. Now, here's what God had to say about that first covenant. Okay, Hebrews 8. Let me take you to Hebrews 8. Check this out. If the first covenant had been faultless, there, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. What was wrong with the first covenant? Very simply put, Israel couldn't keep it. So God says, okay, in fulfillment of the first, I'm gonna give a second, a new one, okay? And I'm gonna do something great through. So here's, here's what the author of Hebrews goes on to say. When God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. So God's gonna work to make this new covenant. And he, he's gonna work, he's gonna make this new covenant of his spirit. That happened at Pentecost. 
When the Spirit began an indwelling ministry for all who believe, when the Spirit began to convict of sin and move us to righteousness, when the Spirit began to testify that we are the children of God, not just the citizens of some national people. And, and so here's what's so cool. The, 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 the old covenant was sealed by the law, new covenant by the Spirit. And when the Spirit came at Pentecost, began to work in the lives of God's people. And therefore, through the indwelling Spirit and the ministry of Jesus, every single follower of Jesus now is a part of this new covenant. And it is a covenant that will never be nullified. And some of you are thinking, but wait a minute. I mess up. Wait a minute. I, I still sin. Wait a minute. I, I still revert back to some things that used to be true of me that shouldn't be. How is this covenant still in force? I'll tell you how. Because God is faithful to do what he's promised to do to this extent. Okay, this is worth coming to church for. Okay, right here. Okay. All right. You ready? Because through the ministry of Jesus and his his sinlessness, when he went to the cross as one who kept the law at all points without sin, and when God poured out his wrath on Jesus for our sin, not his, there was a great exchange. Listen whereby our sin was imputed to Jesus and thus he was judged in our place, but his righteousness was imputed to those of us who believe so that we right now in the eyes of the Father are viewed as righteous covenant keeping men and women because we are covered by the righteousness of our Savior. (laughs) And that is the gospel. And so you say, I'm not perfect. I got good news for you. Your Savior is. And his righteousness was imputed to you. Your sin imputed to him. So that through faith at work now in this new covenant, your father no longer sees your sin. He sees the imputed righteousness of his son. And that's why the New Testament tells us that Jesus is not just your savior, he is your intercessor, so that every single time your enemy points the finger at you and seeks to accuse you, you have an intercessor saying before the Father, Oh, Father, pay no attention to this evil one. These here are ours. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so as the father sees you today, if you are a son or a daughter, he sees you perfectly keeping the law because your savior kept it for you. And that's why this new covenant is everything. The old covenant points forward to this new covenant, a covenant that can be kept not by our own works, but through the work of Jesus. And this new covenant replaces the old and moves in line with Noah's covenant, which sets the stage for what happens through Abraham and David and ultimately Jesus and the indwelling spirit through Pentecost. And and therefore God is faithful. Here's how faithful your God is to you, that when he enters into this covenant with you through faith in Christ, right? 
He is faithful in such a way that even death will never do us part. Not even death will do us part. Because Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no eternal death for those who believe and are part of this new covenant only life. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 2. I love this scripture. I hope this encourages you as it encourages me. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Do you know why? He cannot deny himself. And his spirit lives in those who believe. And we are sons and daughters. And, and so this new covenant is not rooted in the law. It's rooted in the spirit. It's, it's anchored by God's faithfulness, even in the midst of our failures, because we are covered by the righteousness of a savior who never failed. And then finally, hear, hear me now. Here's how you can get in on this. You enter the new covenant by dying to yourself so that you can live in Christ. Hey, I'm hoping you'd like to get in on this new covenant. It's a pretty good covenant. Man, God's given this covenant for you. Here's how you get into it. You gotta die to yourself. Oh man, this is so simple, but it's not easy. Hey, can I just remind you today? I mean, I wanna see revival in our land. I think God's doing some cool stuff. I'm praying that God would do a great work this week in our students and our church family. Hey, can I just tell you this? God's never brought revival through the power of his spirit with a watered down, easy believism gospel that short changes what Christ has done for the church. God's work of revival through the power of his spirit is always accompanied by the proclamation of his word and of his gospel. And I want you to understand, therefore, what I'm saying to you today. You want, you, you want to get in on this new covenant? I hope you do. It's for you. It's way better than the old covenant. We are not national Israel. We are sons and daughters of the king. And you want to get in on this? If you're not in it yet, I'll, listen, you need to get in on this. Here's how you do it. You better die to yourself. It's simple. It's not, it's not easy believism. This is not, hey, just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. Try a little harder. Believe a little bit better you know, show up at church a little more often. Listen, you can't earn your way into this new covenant. The only way you get into this new covenant is to do what Jesus taught you to do, which is to die to yourself, your ambitions, your selfishness, your ego, your pride, your stubbornness, your foolishness, and give yourself completely over to him and his will for your life. You want to get in on this new covenant, there's only one condition. You've got to die to yourself. Here's what Jesus said. He, he said, if anyone wants to be my follower, okay, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. Listen, I'm all about handing out gospel tracts, all right? I ain't ever seen no gospel track with this on the first page. Hey, let me share the gospel with you. You better deny yourself, your selfishness, your arrogance, your pride, your waywardness, um, your, your stubbornness, and you better take up your electric chair and follow Jesus. Because that's how people in the first century would have read, take up your cross. Take up your cross? You want me to have, you know, as my kind of like, like logo for my, for my following of, of Jesus, a Roman cross? That cross is about shame. That 
cross is about, is about uh, disobedience. It's about lawbreakers. That cross is about cruelty. Yeah, that's right. And that's the cross that Jesus went to in enduring all those things for you. And Jesus says, you want to be my follower? You want in on this new covenant? You better deny yourself and take up your cross. And stop living for yourself. Stop living for your own name, your own glory. Stop leveraging who you are and what you have on your own selfish purposes. You, you, want to, you went in on this? Take up your cross and follow me. Here's what Jesus says. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Be filled with my spirit and know what true freedom is like. And then he closes with this. Here's what Jesus says. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? You, win, you want in on this covenant? Here's how you get in. You gotta turn from yourself and turn to Jesus. You can't save yourself. Jesus can save you. You can't live in obedience to the law but Jesus lived there for you. And that's the hope that you and I have. And if you've, if you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, you never asked him into your life today, I wanna to encourage you to do that. You can reach out to us by texting Bell Shoals to 77411. You can connect with us at the round tables as you leave today. We'd love to connect with you about taking your next step of faith, of getting in on this new covenant, of turning from your sin and turning from yourself and saying, yeah, Jesus, I'm gonna take up my cross. I'm gonna follow you no matter what. That's what salvation looks like. If you're a Christ follower already, hey, I wanna encourage you today to live for Jesus. I want you to understand that Jesus loves you. God loves you, that if you're a follower of his, you're not just a citizen in the way that Israel was a citizen. You are a son. You are a daughter. And God loves you. And that's why of all of the metaphors we have in scripture about our relationship with God. We have some of, you know, a, a husband and a wife and, 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 and we have, you know, certainly a king and a subject kind of thing. But, you know, can I just tell you what the most powerful metaphor we have in all of scripture is for the way that God relates to us? It's that of a father and a child. Because my wife and I have four babies who are now <laughs> young adults. <laughs> and the way that we love our children is uniquely different from the way that we love ourselves. Do you know why? Because it's whether your child comes through an adoption process or, or whether they're born to you. You know what's true of your children? You don't stand before a pastor and say, I do. Because your little babies don't bring anything to the table. Well, they do. They bring a lot of heartache. They bring a lot of stress. They bring a lot of fatigue. When your kids are little, they don't bring anything to the table. There's no, okay, let me take my baby before our pastor and just, hey, okay, okay, little baby, we're gonna, come on. You gotta say, I do, I do. No, 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 there's none of that. But they're yours. And you love them in a way that is so radically unconditional. It doesn't matter what they do, you're gonna love them. And my children, listen, they have been the source of such trouble. I was so tired. There's about a 10-year window of my life. I don't remember anything other than being tired. They brought nothing to the table. Diapers are expensive, and even the ones you get, they're blowing out of them. You can't go out to eat. Going to church is difficult. Man, I'm trying, I'm trying. I mean, you're arguing with your spouse. My wife and I, I'm sure, got in tons of arguments just because we were so fatigued. We didn't even know what day. What I'm trying to tell you is the source of all the trouble in my life is because of my kids. <laughs> 
But man, I love those kids. Don't you love your children? I'm not even going to mention grandchildren. I already know. I'm going to hear it today. Hey, wait till you have. I already know. It's even different and better. I know. What is that? It's a love that is so radically unconditional. Let me tell you how much I love my babies because I know you love your babies the same way. Whatever they were to do today, tomorrow, into the future, I will love those kids. And I will love them as their father. And some days that might be tough love and some days that's just, you know, good old fun love. Just, man, I just love them. And, um, but you know what? There's four people on this planet that call me daddy and I love those kids. And I will love them forever. It doesn't matter what they do. And I just want you to understand something today as we leave. That some of you are sitting here right now and you doubt whether or not God can truly love you because of something you've done in your past, something you're doing in your present. Some of you as Christ followers, you're in this new covenant, but, but, but you know, you've been pressing against the Spirit's conviction, the Spirit's power. Can I just remind you today that that Spirit, the Holy Spirit within you, gives you the power to do all you need to do to honor God and to live life to the fullest. Lean into God's Spirit in your life. And understand there is nothing you will ever do that will cause your father to stop loving you. He loves you as a father. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, our spirit testifies with his spirit that we are the children of God. And so you are loved beyond anything you could ever imagine. Christ and his imputed righteousness right now sustains you and keeps you in a good relationship with your father. And you will always be there. And so my encouragement to you is to lean into the spirit, lean into your father, live for him, love him, cultivate a walk of life that glorifies him in every area. And then you will know what it means to live life to the fullest in this new covenant where you have not some God up there somewhere, some man upstairs. No, you have the God of this universe who is your father and who is working for your good and has given you the power of his spirit. And that gives us life to the fullest.